friends, welcome to another episode of the Free to Love podcast. This week's conversation is called Blame, Shame, Control, and Escape, Recognizing Your Coping Mechanisms. In a cultural moment such as ours, where therapeutic language has been popularized by pop psychology and widely spread by social media, the topic of coping mechanisms is one that many of us have at least a shallow understanding of. Last week, we stressed the importance of examining our families of origin to understand the powerful capacity they have to shape us for ill and for good. Often, it is during this work of excavation that we are able to develop a greater awareness of the ways that we sought to navigate the pain and complexity of the world. In doing so, we developed strategies for coping that have stuck with us and have often become toxic, inhibiting us from experiencing the depth of peace and relationship that we truly long for. Now, while there are myriad ways that we can cope, our conversation this week explores the four dominant categories of behavior that we introduced last week and which are the title of this episode. These characterize our attempts to deal with pain and disappointment and the anxieties of life. Sharing from our own personal stories, we reflect on the theological roots of coping mechanisms, examining how the first two chapters of Genesis paints a powerful picture of our human propensity and God's response to pain. Realizing that each culture tends to elevate or baptize certain expressions of our coping mechanisms and uphold them as virtues, we wrestle with the implications of that and ask a provocative question. Can spirituality and religion become an unhealthy way of coping itself? Well, friends, this week we cover this and much more. So we thank you for joining us for another conversation, and we hope that it encourages you. Welcome back, everybody, to uh, Free to Love, Transforming Pain to Peace. I'm here with the wise, the majestic... Oh dear. Oh dear. Jen. Jen. No, that was for Jen. Jen. Oh. And the court jester, oh, Jeff Ranke. Woo. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Today we're going to dive into uh, coping mechanisms. And the last two weeks we have talked about emotional awareness, emotional intelligence, the mm-hmm. importance of beginning to be aware of and to try and name the emotions that we're feeling. Uh, the next week after that, we dove deeper into family systems, the the family of origin, the importance of why do we need to dig into the story, not the story of our life, the story of Mm -hmm. our family's life, and how can that inform our own healing journey? And we, in that, in those two chapters, we, um, we are introduced the concept of coping mechanisms. We never defined them, I don't think. So we're going to start out by Mm. defining them in a second. Um, And this will be a little bit of a deeper dive into coping mechanisms and the importance of understanding them and beginning the topic of, well, once we've understood what they are and named them in, in our own lives, in our own stories, what can we do to begin to change? Yeah. So to start out with, how would you define coping mechanism? So uh, coping mechanisms are our pain reactions mm-hmm. and they're attached to our old nature, our old self. And so in order for us to understand and for us to change, we need to first identify and name our coping mechanisms. What are, what are the behaviors or the attitudes that are attached to our pain, to our sin, uh, to those places of our lives in our dark places that we've learned how to survive through the years? And so one of the ways I describe coping mechanisms is really our way to dismiss, to deny, and to push away our past unredeemed pain. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's because you hear coping in, in secular world as well. Like uh, it's, it's a response to pain. This hurts. So we respond to it to try and mitigate the pain. Mm-hmm. Our coping is a way to mitigate the pain, make the pain go away. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a survival instinct. It kicks up, uh, fight or flight. That's a coping. Yep. Ah, there's this crazy thing happening. Where uh, it's built in us to mitigate the pain so that we can survive and live. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing about our coping mechanisms, we need to understand that these 
behavioral reactions have their origin in the fall of man. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 to see that the birth of our coping mechanisms are passed down from generation to generation to generation. So I think it's important for understand from a theological point of view, this isn't just some behavioral modification from understanding psychology. This really has its roots in the anatomy of a sinful man. Mm. Well, you want to take us there, Jeff, and unpack some of uh, Genesis 3? Yeah. So in Genesis chapter 3, as we, we go all the way back to our forefathers and mother and father, Adam and Eve, in the garden, uh, we come to, uh, I'm going to start reading from verse 6. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized, here we go, they realized that they were naked as they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So we see already when they defied God and they turned against God and they believed the lie that the first thing they do after they took the bite of the apple is they came to this realization that they were naked. That's where shame is introduced. So we see the coping mechanism of shame was the very first consequence of the anatomy of sinful man, of this deep, traumatic encounter with their nakedness. And what did they do when they were naked? We see the second coping mechanism is that they took control and they begin to uh, cover themselves with fig leaves. So that's the second coping mechanism is that they, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for them. As we go on, it says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves. They hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees. So, wow, that was really smart. <laughs> so they, they thought in their pain, and this shows you that the, this really shows you when you're in your shame is you don't see clearly, you lose sight of reality and they thought they could hide from themselves from God. So we see shame entered into the scene out of covering their pain. Then we see that they took control. And then the third component of when there is a violation of love and trust is that they, uh, they hid themselves. But the Lord God called to the man, and I love this. This really, I think this really shows us the nature of God's love, his grace to us. While we're in our sin, when Adam and Eve are uh, there in the place of defiance and hiding from God, the Father comes in a gentle spirit, mm. as He does to all of us, and He asks them, "You jerk! I can't believe you did this! I told you not to do that!" You, no, you didn't do that. That's what we think He would do to us. Mm. In my head, I go to that place of He's angry at me and accusing me. But he says, where are you? Mm-hmm. Of course, we know that God knows where we are. And then he answered, this is, look at the answer, uh, Adam. He didn't really answer the question. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? So these two questions are powerful questions where are you is an invitation for Adam and Eve to do self-examination, to empower them to take responsibility for, for their sin. It was an invitation. And then the second question, when he did, when he kind of, uh, when he dismissed the question and he said, well, I was afraid. And so we hit ourselves is God said, well, who told you that you were naked? And I see that as the Father's invitation for us to take responsibility, Mm. to really begin to look into our heart and take responsibility. But we see then the final coping mechanism, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she (laughs) gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So we see it was a double blame. So the woman you gave me, it was a double accusation, your fault. So there are the four coping mechanisms that are grounded 
in the origin of the fallenness of man, Adam and Eve, of blame, shame, and control and escape. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, the coping can be, the pain can come because of our own sin, like you just showed us in Adam and Eve. Sometimes we do something that we're like horrified, our own sin is causes pain, um, but also it can be something that's done or something we experience externally. And so there's a painful experience that we go through that can still, we respond to pain, um, like emotional pain or physical pain. We're going to respond to it. Um, Our body is going to kick into survival mode of how do I make this pain go away? And we kick into automatic responses. And that's really what we're going to explore a little bit more in depth. And um, I just want to point out that, that coping might at first seem very, very helpful. That's why people talk about coping mechanisms. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's like, you're rewarded for coping. Oh, good mm-hmm. job. You're coping well with your pain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, you've been through a hard time. Yeah. Oh, as long as you're coping, well yeah. done. Yeah. So I know that that language is out there, but when we use it, mm-hmm. if you've been listening to this podcast, you notice we keep using it as all, it's, a, it's got this negative connotation. Yeah. The reason that we're doing that is because we're acknowledging that the coping, it's an automatic response. It by itself is like, survival mode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we go into fight or flight to keep us alive, to keep that threat at bay, to save us in that moment. And the, the dilemma there is that sometimes that fight or flight coping response is very helpful. Escape can be very, very helpful mm-hmm. when you're running from a bear. That's right. Absolutely. So winning on the escape yep. coping mechanism, um, Blame that anger response in you to an injustice that's happening, that quick beating in your heart and that bravery that comes over you where you stand up for something that's happening to you that should not be happening to you. Way to go, coping, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. mechanism there. Um, But what we're talking about is, is when you have internalized something that worked in the moment, in the moment of actual threat Um, this survival instinct that kicked up, um, maybe it saved you right then. But what happens is since it saved you once, your brain really likes it. It seemed to work. Mm -hmm. And so your brain goes, golly, when I felt that terrible thing, that was a good go-to. But what happens is we're not usually in life-threatening, really dangerous situations, but our brain will perceive threats around us and internalize that as, there it is again, I'm in danger. Mm -hmm. And so we will respond Mm -hmm. in this fight or flight, intense coping Mm -hmm. in non-threatening situations. We will still respond this way because this is what our brain learned to do. And so these coping mechanisms that maybe at one point was neutral or maybe saving can turn toxic. Mm. That's right. It can turn toxic. It can turn into something that's very unhealthy in us. And lo and behold, we've now formed a habitual response to pain. That's good. That is detrimental to our own lives and detrimental to those around us. Yeah. So that's why here on this podcast, in, in the skills material and such, when we are talking about coping, we're usually talking about it as something we don't want to live in any mm. longer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's so well put, Jen. What was once helpful has become the barrier to true intimacy, to, yeah. to, to truly getting our needs met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also love that you mentioned coping is something that we hear in our culture a lot. You know, the reason why we're talking about it specifically is because we want to truly understand it and to reframe it. I mean, I think about our culture has glorified certain coping mechanisms, yeah. right? Uh, sanctified them. So yes, you do, you get praise, right? Overworking is a coping mechanism oftentimes, mm. right? Mm. Cause it's one, you get to avoid your pain, right? <laughs> um, and man, do we, do we applaud people here in America who overwork and overproduce? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. can you think of some other coping mechanisms that are glorified in our current culture? Oh, for sure. The, the, um, the type A, let me do everything. People are like, yay, this girl copes with stress by getting everything done, by super cleaning the house. Mm-hmm. Like, this is amazing. Stress her out more often. Yeah. Then our house is spotless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's not good. That's not healthy for anyone. Mm-hmm. 
and authoritarian leadership or transactional leadership is that, hey, this is, if you don't do it this way, there's the consequences. So, yeah. and so you can use, you can mm. use intimidation or even anger. A lot of leadership we see in corporations are built on, on basic intimidation and mm-hmm. control in it's order to get example. the job done. Yeah. Mm. Strong, the, the strong man fallacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think another one that comes to mind, uh, particularly here in Southern California, uh, is fitness. That's oh. a huge coping mechanism, in part because it releases, you know, incredibly powerful endorphins yeah. that are that that trains our brain. But man, you know, we're a, a youth obsessed and a, and a beauty obsessed and an outwardly, mm-hmm. you know, obsessed culture. And uh, a lot of people, you know, I mean, we see this in eating disorders, right? Mm-hmm. That's a, you know, beauty can be a coping response. Totally, and so. It's good to be fit. Like for that example, it's good to be fit. It's good to have a clean house with these Mm -hmm. examples. It's good to like, but, um, the difference. So a coping behavior could look like a healthy behavior, Mm -hmm. like going jogging every day, Mm -hmm. going jogging every day could be a very healthy response and decision and lifestyle, or that very same action could be a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Because if you're jogging because you are being healthy and choosing this out of a life-giving place, great. We applaud you. Mm -hmm. If you're jogging because you're avoiding being at home Mm -hmm. or because you think so little of yourself that Mm -hmm. I must drop that next three more pounds and I just must do this. I must do And it's a way of toxically controlling your body or like literally running from something in your life to avoid being at home. There's so many motives for why you might be running. And if those motives are actually to um, be surviving from pain that you're in, then we would say that that jogging every morning is actually a yeah. coping mechanism. Yeah. And that's where we're saying coping when we're living in coping because we are trying to mask or avoid or diminish the pain we're in. We are talking about that as an unhealthy thing because we believe that Jesus actually wants to meet us there and set us free from the pain at the heart of it so that we no longer live in survival mode. Mm. I really believe we were not meant to live in survival mode. He has abundant life for us, not a life of the bare minimum, but a, but abundant life. And so he wants to set us free from living in pain and in a pain response all the time. So that's why we are wanting to, um, to, to really look at why we do what we do catch ourselves when we are living in a coping lifestyle or coping behavior Mm -hmm. so that we can address it at the root and be set free. Yeah. So kind of bringing, kind of bringing some, some uh, to summarize all this and understanding what coping mechanisms are is that first, I think we need to understand coping mechanisms was learned in our early developmental stages of our life for the sake of survival that you were just you were speaking to Jennifer. Um, however, the problem is, but they become obstacles to our growth as adults and to intimacy with our loved ones. Uh, the second component of coping mechanisms that they are created because of the absence of love and trust. And we talked about that at our last podcast is mm-hmm. the, the, the absence of the deficiency of not being loved or affirmed or experiencing affection is that we're going to naturally go to a place of self-protection. Mm-hmm. And so understanding the coping mechanism, as you were, as you were saying, Joseph, is not necessarily a bad thing, but if we don't deal with it growing up, that becomes a hindrance from growth and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's really important we need to realize, and this is why we have the skills classes and this is why you know we believe in counseling and mentoring, is that it's going to take time to change. We've been doing this for for generations. We've been doing this mm-hmm. for decades. We've been doing this for years that our brain has not been hardwired to behave in these unhealthy, destructive coping mechanisms. Then it's going to take a while for us to be able to identify, yes. to to process and to deal with our past hurt and pain. When it's our natural propensities, I don't want to deal with that. I want to dismiss it. I want to deny it, or I want to push it and bury it. And when we push and bury our pain, we push people away. So understanding is that it takes time, and this is the journey of, I think, transformation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you want to look at the primary ways we cope? Yeah. Yes. Let's look at the primary ways that we cope. Um, although, 
you know what? Before we get there, self-compassion, right? Why is it important mm. to understand that, uh, hey, these were the kind of more objective perspective that you just offered, Jeff. These were strategies for survival that you developed when you were young, when you did not have the resources to be able to meet the emotional challenges or the vulnerability of the world uh, that have then become obstacles. Um, understanding that mm. they served a good purpose, yeah. Um, at, but they have now become destructive and need to be let go of enables you to have self-compassion, right? I don't know if I'm unpacking that the way that I, I really want to. So maybe we'll, we'll circle back you, around You were to sharing it. something with, before we started recording about your own understanding as you started recognizing your coping mechanisms and the, the, the guilt or the shame you felt around that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, actually a great point. When I learned about coping mechanisms and the way that we're talking about it, um, my first response was one of my primary coping mechanisms, <laughs> which was shame. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. and, and, and I still have to deal with that. Your point mm-hmm. about the fact that it takes a while to change. Uh, there are parts of my story that I don't like, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. That I, that I wrestle with each time I share my story in a, in a you know, a skills class or something yeah. or with a, a friend or a family member and talk about these, um, these parts of my past, uh, and these different strategies that I developed to cope, uh, man, there's, there's great potential for me to ex- slip right back into shame because mm-hmm. they're, uh, they're not pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's, I think it's, again, that's our human nature is I've realized that if, if there's still areas of my past that I'm wanting to dismiss or I don't want to talk about or they're actually bringing in a deeper sense of shame, I've, I realize that has not been redeemed yet in its totality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and, yeah. So I, I think that it's rather than looking at it as the enemy and dismissing it and then beating up on myself and going to a place of self-contempt and I can't believe I did that, I'm buying back into my pain cycle. Mm. God, God is saying, no, I, I accept the totality of your humanity and even the places of brokenness and in your places of past pain, I'm here for you. And so that's part of, that's part of the reframing, changing our, our thought process. But again, as you, as you just alluded to, which we all have that experience, it does take time for that healing. And I hear you also that's, I think that self-compassion that you were talking about mm-hmm. is, is we might look at the way we've handled things and we are embarrassed about the way we handled things, or it kicks up another pain or coping response in us. Uh, like you were describing there, Joseph. Um, but it's that, I think part of healing is Jesus because Jesus has compassion on us. Mm-hmm. Jesus uh, doesn't turn away from us because of how we responded to a situation. He's with us in it, and he's like, I want to heal you from that and with that. And um, But he also welcomes us to also have compassion on our own selves. Yes. Because if you learned this response from maybe this is the way your, your parent always handled pain, um, and so you kind of mimic that, or maybe your parent handled pain in a very loud, aggressive way. So you learned to shut down. And so you reacted and learned the opposite reaction, but you learned it as a kid and now it's causing problems with you as an adult and you're frustrated about that. Maybe there's some self-hatred about how you respond to things. That's where I think that self-compassion is really powerful. Yeah is to be able to say, Mm -hmm. I'm not excusing why I do what I do, but I can have compassion on why I learned that, why I started doing that, why my brain learned when I feel pain, do these Mm -hmm. things. I can have compassion for the way I survived because I was doing the best I could with a really hard situation. And in compassion, I can have grace and I can, and, and that's very healing. Yeah. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it doesn't excuse it, and we still want to change it. We still want to grow yeah. and not live there anymore. Yeah, yeah, and we—I mean, we see that in Genesis, as you mentioned, Jeff. God's first response to our sin or our pain isn't judgment; it's curiosity, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. we want to model that too. Let's mm-hmm. get curious about 
our coping. Let's get curious about our pain. Mm-hmm. But to your point there, Jen, um, there is consequence, right? You read, Absolutely. I mean, they are expelled from the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I love how, you, Jeff, you pointed out, you like this this example because it reveals kind of the, the tender um, heart of God. Yes. And when I was just reading back through it, one of the things that jumped out too is that, you know, okay, there are consequences to their actions, um, but it's God, one of the last acts that God does personally in that is in verse 21, it says, the Lord made garments of skin for mm, Adam and his yes, wife and clothed yes. them. He knew that, so even in the judgment, mm-hmm. there is provision, right? He knows right. he's, he's yeah. yeah, and compassion, right? He's yeah. actually equipping them with this, you know, new protective layer. It's not, it's not fig leaves, which will, you know, wither in a couple of days. It's, you know, it's a animal skin and he sends them out into the new hardships that they have to face um, with some provision. Yeah. Yeah. And I, what's beautiful about the gospel um, and that grace, grace always wins. Yeah. There are consequences, but also there's redemption and it's not like we live in karma where there's always, you know, karma is that, that there's always going to be a consequence. Yes. However, God is going to turn our darkness. God has the, the, the mystery of the gospel is how he turns our darkness into light. But he won't turn the darkness into light until we're, we're willing to face our own darkness, until we have the courage to look at our own hearts and have the courage to, to ask hard questions and bring God into those places of our pain. And I like David said, he has a conversation, his spirit being has a conversation with his soul. He says, why are you so anxious? Oh, my soul. Why, what is it? You know, he's, he's having this, why are you so disquieted? Oh, my soul. So he's having this inner dialogue, the courage to face the confusion of his own pain. And I, that's the beauty of, of, the importance of us facing with God's grace, facing our coping mechanisms and our pain. Well, let's dive into some of those coping mechanisms a little bit more. Those four primary ones of shame, blame, shame, control, or escape. Um, That first one, blame, anger. Any thoughts? Dude, have... Anybody here get angry? <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, this is, this has been part of one of my coping mechanisms is as um, when I have felt, uh, when I felt devalued and um, not known growing up and there was a deficiency in the absence of the affirmation of my earthly father um, is that I early on I just learned to shut down and pull away. So I learned how to just I learned how to do escape. Uh, but as I got older, that escape turned to anger. And looking back at my own journey of understanding my own story is that I know the origin of my anger was this reality of a protest. There was an injustice that I, there was something lacking in in my in the makeup of the social being of the anatomy of my humanity that I wasn't getting the love that I needed. And again, as we talked about last week, we're not blaming. It's not about blaming. It's, it's now I have to take responsibility for my coping. I have to take responsibility for, for my anger. So, but I, I understanding um, that anger in a, is one of the most destructive coping mechanisms there is. When we lash out um, out of our pain, um, how we can hurt people, and to what degree we really understand the hurt that we're projecting on other people when we are when we're angry, when we're blaming, when we're critical, um, those are all, or even passive aggressive behavior. That's all a form of anger, and it can become a very powerful survival to to a uh, survival tool. Uh, for the sake of our self-protection. But I think it's one of the most dangerous coping mechanisms there is. They're all dangerous, but I think this is one that I've experienced has caused a lot of pain for me. Mm. It's often, it looks more overt sometimes. It's, it's uh, versus like the shamer, which is more internal, the blamer, it's a lot of 
it often looks more external because it's yeah. outward, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're experiencing pain, ah, pain. Um, it's like we mentally go, why am I experiencing pain? The blame response goes, I'm experiencing pain because it's your fault. Yeah. And it puts the, 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 the reason for the pain is external. It's you. That's the blamer. And they always can find an external reason or something else to say, this is the cause of the pain. If you would just change, then I would be better. It's your fault. This is this. I got this ticket because you didn't put the signs up, right? The light changed. They, a blamer is a master of externalizing why yes. something mm-hmm. happened, of not taking mm-hmm. fault for themselves. Yeah. versus the shamer, which is the next one we're talking about. They look at the, this painful thing. Why is there pain? Why am I experiencing pain? They internalize it and go, oh, it must be my fault. Mm-hmm. So the blamer says it's somebody else's fault. The shamer says it must be my fault. And they internalize the, this faulty logic that there must be something wrong with me mm-hmm. or I must have done something. And it's not just, I made a mistake. That would would actually maybe in many cases be a healthy response to acknowledging and taking responsibility over actions. That's not the same thing as shame. Guilt says I made a mistake and I feel remorse for it. Um, Guilt can be something that can prompt us to take proper reconciliatory action. Okay. Guilt is not the same thing as shame. Shame says I must be defective. Mm -hmm. I must not be worthwhile. Not just I made a mistake, but I made a mistake because I can't do anything. I'm I'm a mistake. Yeah, I'm a mistake. Yes, I am a mistake. And so you see there's a, there's a, it might sound like a subtle difference, but it means all the world because Mm now you've internalized something. Mm -hmm. So the shamer often um, with, can, um, one response might be, I'm so defective or I, um, nobody's going to love me because I'm, there's something wrong with me. So I'm going to, um, just beg for love from everyone. And so it can be this very needy, um, response or clinginess. Um, shamers can also, um, withdraw to pout. So they go away and this sort of Eeyore of like, Oh, woe is me. (laughs) Look at me almost. And sometimes, uh, it's annoying because they can be, um, where you can't console them. Mm-hmm. And so Are you talking about me? <laughs> I'm talking about me, Jeff. <laughs> no, you're talking about me. <laughs> but they're not consolable. Have you ever met that friend or that loved oh, one who's mm-hmm. like, oh, they feel bad and you compliment them or you you try and tell them something positive and they just can't receive any of yeah. the positive and they just keep spiraling down and it doesn't matter how much you shower them with love they just can't take it because there's still like this empty vessel looking for more mm-hmm. that would be probably a shamer that you're dealing with yeah. there well so yeah i'm uh shame is one of my primary uh coping mechanisms and to the, your point about anger because anger is a human universal right mm-hmm. shame is a human universal too yeah. you know Br- Brene Brown does a wonderful job yeah. of talking about that in her work right so each of us have to learn how to be shame resilient mm-hmm. as part of you know the, this healthy um, maturing process but uh, anger is also a human universal mm-hmm. and we've talked about and named the you know the explicit exterior type of anger like for me pre- predominantly being um, a shamer, I, I never thought about myself as an angry person. I was really, I really disassociated from anger as a concept in part because of growing up in a a Christian home my whole life. I mean, well, good Christians aren't angry. angry. You you Mm. can't be a good Christian boy and be angry. And so then what do you do with the anger? Right. You stuff it. Mm. And what happens when you stuff the anger? Well, you begin to suffer from chronic depression Mm -hmm. and anxiety. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it sometimes comes out and, but that's like this, you know, solar flare mm. that, that pops out and scorches somebody. But for the most part, yeah, you, you internalize it yeah. mm-hmm. and that's just as destructive as, um, as the exterior type of anger. And there is a slippery slope and we're going to, in, uh, episodes, other episodes will probably address this, but. The slippery slope is when we internalize our anger, we go to a place of shame and then self-pity and depression. However, if we don't deal with it, then we're going to go to a place of, of bitterness and resentment. Mm-hmm. And we can, and that's, that's really described in self-destructive uh, uh, entitlement. 
Mm-hmm. So we can, in our anger, if we don't deal with our anger, we can internalize it in shame, or we can go to even a more destructive and deadlier coping mechanism, and that is resentment. And it comes out of a place, you know what? I don't deserve to be treated this way. I don't, this is what I deserve. Mm. And I have found that that is one of the most destructive spiritual uh, sins um, in uh, a relationship mm-hmm. is resentment or bitterness. You know, both of these things, as you're mentioning, Jeff, uh, both of them can lead to a per- perpetual state of victimhood, right? That's right. And uh, we see, man, don't we see that totally. in our culture yeah. right now? It's uh, it's in vogue mm-hmm. to be able to name the different ways that you are a victim, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and to go and occupy that place as a primary part of your identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we talked, we, we addressed it last episode, but just to remind the listeners is that blame and shame are coping mechanisms that are birthed out of the violation of love, which has to do with our identity. So when, we, when we're sensing that we are not valued, then it's more instinctive and natural for us to react in ways of either blaming or shaming. So what about what about the violation of trustworthiness or feeling unsafe? What are the coping mm-hmm. mechanisms? Totally. For that? When we feel like our world is unsafe, when we feel like we can't trust the world around us or the people around us, one go-to response is to it's almost like a fight response, but it's a control response. It is if my world feels unsafe, I'm going to grab on and white knuckle it into feeling safe. Mm-hmm. I will control whatever I can control to make it feel safe. And uh, controlling behaviors, controlling coping can um, be very obvious, like almost like OCD. I will mm-hmm. control. Mm-hmm. Um, it can look like nagging. It can look like, um, gosh, it can go more disguised and undercover. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, I will work. control your perception of me. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have no worth, so yes. I will make myself worthy for you by being the best people pleaser in mm-hmm. the whole wide world. Did you know people pleasing was a type of control? I'm just trying to control your perception of me. Mm-hmm. I, it's so crazy. Or you can be a, just a straight up performer. Yeah. And um, performer, like you can think of it as the the comical, like class clown. Like I'm afraid that people don't want me around. So I will make them like me by being jovial and being whatever it, Mm -hmm. but a performer can look like a chameleon who adapts to be likable or, um, a chameleon to be whatever persona they perceive is needed to make themselves avoid the pain. Right. Um, performing can also look like I'm going to earn my worth Mm -hmm. or earn these things. And so performance is one of those coping mechanisms that's praised by our culture. You can be a high top falutin person who's overworking, going for degree after degree after degree, but it's all motivated from this place of, I feel empty. I feel like I have no validation. I feel like I don't matter unless I can prove these things. Yeah. And so that's where control um, can kick in there. Yeah. It's, it's real interesting because uh, it's only been in the last few years that I've come to realization um, how, how I've learned how to control, and I wasn't even aware of it. And that was through, and really in the workplace, is what I call anxiety performance. Yeah. And I never realized that, you know, coming, coming from, from since I was nine years old, uh, and, uh, you know, my whole, our religion in my family growing up was sports. So since I was nine years old till I was 24 years old, I was on the baseball field or I was on the basketball court. So, and then I coached, but I didn't realize that a lot of my drivenness was, was a control is that I, I had to mm. perform. I had to be successful. And so one of the major characteristics I, I see, which as I'm sharing with my own personal story is a control can be driven by anxiety or fear. Totally. So we can use... You know, we can use fear uh, as a motivating factor to control. We can use guilt as as a motivating factor um, to to control. So it's it's like you said, it can be both covert and more overt in mm-hmm. how we will control. Yeah. yeah. So the the bedfellow of control is escape. Yep. 
Anyone in a, an escape artist here? You can't see, but I'm raising my hand. <laughs> Describe it for us, yeah, it's time. I, I need to go right now. I'm sorry. Yeah, this yeah. is too personal. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes, honestly, in conflict, particularly when, um, as you know, as somebody who's more prone to shame and to internalizing anger, if I'm in conflict with somebody who is more aggressive or more overtly angry, um, I often will literally try to escape the situation. You know, I, I'll hit a breaking point and just leave. Because I'm like, I can't, I can't handle this, right? Um, but I think as you mentioned last episode, Jeff, one of the primary ways that people try to escape is addiction. And, you know, in, a, in the U.S. in particular, in a consumer culture, addiction is like the air that we breathe. I mean, in reality, yeah. everybody that you know has some form of addiction. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, soft addiction, soft addiction, hard addiction, um, but, you know, I mean, my, man, I've been good at, I think I've tried most different ways of, of escaping mm. and numbing out. You know, when I was a, when I was a younger kid, I, uh, honestly reading was part of the way that I escaped from a family, a sometimes chaotic family of five kids, mm-hmm. um, that was kind of riding the edge of poverty and, you know, middle class. Uh, and yeah, dude, those, uh, those books were a way for me to escape from the chaos of the world, not knowing how mm-hmm. to control it. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. similar to you, Jeff later, it was sexuality, right. Being mm-hmm. exposed to, to pornography yeah. at a young age. Yeah. And that became a massive way of escape. Yeah. You know? Which did you said the bedfellow? I really like, I've, I've never heard that term. It's the bedfellow uh, for control is because actually escaping through addiction is a form of control uh-huh. or you have to, you have to con, you have to control the environment. You have to be very hypervigilant. If you're going to operate out of addictive behavior, you're going to have to control your environment. You're mm-hmm. going to have to control those people around you, which is, it's really, it's, it seems to be so counterintuitive that I've heard that the person who has the most control in a family system of addiction is the victim or is the addict. Mm. Hmm. Is yeah. that uh, that how they can control out of fear, out of out of their own mm-hmm. um, need for dependency? Is that we're controlling by escaping? It's really fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which you bring up a good point to highlight here is that we don't just do one of these. Yes. Okay. We yeah. have like our kind of our default go to mm-hmm. patterns yeah. of these. Mm-hmm. Like you're, I'm a default shamer. Hardcore before you've even like finished the sentence, I'm already shaming myself, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. my go-to. I'm a shamer, and then I'm going to lean in and try and control. Mm-hmm. That's that's some of my go-to. Mm-hmm. But we are all going to dabble in all the others. Yeah. So totally. the shamer gets tired of just internalizing yeah. all that on themselves, and probably will, like you said, a solar flare of mm-hmm. <laughs> of reaching yeah. out, actually blaming the other, mm-hmm. like actually, and and go after the other attack mode. Um, the control person that's it's exhausting all of these are oh exhausting my gosh. and so the controller <laughs> so will slide into escape yeah. mode sometimes and the escape artist yeah. like you just said the addict who's numbing out will have to control their environment quite a lot to uh, be able to do that mm-hmm. but i think that there were a few other elements of the escape um mechanism as a coping mechanism were you highlighting any others there oh i mean what escape what other ways escape looks like yeah, I, I mean, a big one that comes to mind right now is technology. I think that's the, the probably oh, yeah. the addiction that everybody yeah, is wrestling right. with the most. Yeah. You know, whether it's whether it's email, you know, in a in a mm-hmm. a productive way of escape. <laughs> you know, whether yeah. that's social media, whether that's uh, binging Netflix. You know, um, whether that's constantly scrolling the stock market. You know, I mean, pick your poison. Right now, um, we're we as a culture are are trying to reckon with the damage that we're inflicting upon ourselves and upon our communities because we have an addictive relationship with technology, Mm -hmm. you know, and then obviously, I mean, like substances is a, is a, is a primary Mm -hmm. one. I mean, we've got, currently we've got a massive opioid epidemic in our country, right? Yeah. Um, Oh my gosh. Fentanyl is destroying people's lives and communities. But I mean, in our culture in particular, man, alcohol, that one for generations has been this acceptable form mm. of addiction. And it's on the rise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But escaping, you're, you, you use the word numbing out. So mm-hmm. you can literally be trying to just, um, the pain is too intense. I just want it to like 
I don't want to feel anything anymore. So honestly, some people, that's why depression sleep mm-hmm. is often a, um, mm, yeah. associated with that because your body is physically saying, I want, I'm so tired all the time. I just want to literally go into a cocoon and shut it all out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, um, you can, so you can physically escape by removing yourself, um, but you can mentally escape and go into fantasy land, into mm-hmm. all sorts of things. Yeah. I think um, one way to realize if you're doing this, because you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not addicted to anything. This isn't me. But honestly, um, if you're ever feeling uncomfortable in a situation and you find yourself looking down at your phone, mm-hmm. odds are you are, that that was an escape technique. Mm-hmm. You're a little bit uncomfortable with this conversation right now. So you are now just got to check something mm-hmm. um, that might be a, a low key. You're not addicted. We're not going to yeah. use that word, but we're just saying you just escaped that moment. Humor. Um, I think humor is a way to deflect mm-hmm. and avoid, uh, to escape it. Um, distraction. I think distraction is another way we escape um, from what we perceive as, because uncomfortable things we perceive as a threat. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so. Yeah. And to understand that control and escape is the antithesis of intimacy. So when we, when yes. the, this being vulnerable and being in a place where we're at risk of being loved or not being loved or being accepted or being rejected, that sense of vulnerability in, we talked about vulnerability in Latin is vulnera, which is to, to wound is when we are the threat of us being wounded mm-hmm. is then how are we going to cope with that? Well, we're either going to get really busy. We're going to stay on our phone. We're not going to be present. We're going to be controlling uh, or we're going to numb out. So we don't have to deal with the heart of our pain or the fear of being alone, or the fear of, of experiencing rejection. Mm-hmm. So, but our culture our culture, culture of addiction is amplifying the, and, and makes the coping mechanisms virtuous. So we're buying into busyness. Mm. And so we're unaware that our brains are, our brains are just hypervigilant and hardwired toward anxiety or fear or depression. And we're unaware of that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we turn the, I want to turn the magnifying glass on our tribe really quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this podcast is obviously, we're, you know, we're sitting in a church right now having this conversation. We all work at a church. Um, spirituality and religion. Is that a coping mechanism, Jeff? Oh my gosh. You, is, all right. Do you want to go there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I think that we should. Yeah. So... Um, and just as, as you asked me that question, I think about my own, a little bit of my own story is was I was unaware. And I, I mentioned earlier that that um, what drove my life out of my own pain and I was trained is anxiety performance is even after I got saved and I, I did experience God's grace and I experienced uh, an element of forgiveness uh, at the same time. I brought into my into my f- Christian world anxiety performance, and I was unaware that um, as an athlete, how I burned out my body through the years of competition physically. I've realized in the last twenty five years as a pastor and operating the church, I've burned out my soul mm. through anxiety performance. Mm. That same coping mechanisms of performance and anxiety um, drove me. I brought that into the Christian community that drove me into performance and I was unaware of it. I, I was aware of that, but I didn't know how to get out of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's been my journey is, is coming to a place of complete and utter surrendering and brokenness that God has had me bring me to that point of letting go, of realizing I cannot do this on my own. I even serving Jesus, I have to learn to let go, and and discover uh, His grace and discover His forgiveness. So, 
So that sense of religiosity Mm -hmm. is I know that I'm not alone in the anxiety performance that is haunting the church, driving, Mm -hmm. you know, the religiousness of of, uh, Western Christianity that Mm -hmm. is having, I think, a dire impact where we are today. Sure. Warped views of God can create pain Mm -hmm. in us so we can be coping and call it worship, but it can come out in our, in our theology, it can come out in our spirituality and our spiritual religious behaviors. Um, so you can see all of these being played out in church, in church environments for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's toxic and terribly damaging to all sorts of people. But like you said, or we were talking about a lot of behaviors like going running jogging in the morning mm-hmm. could be a really healthy thing or it can become a toxic thing if it's motivated from the an unhealthy place. I think a lot of our spiritual behaviors are yeah. similar. Yeah. And in the subtle the subtlety of the spiritual toxicity is how we can even we can become toxic in our positivity. Mm. Mm-hmm. Where we dismiss the pain by just saying, we dismiss the pain. We're not allowed to feel pain anymore because Jesus has saved us. Like God is good. Oh, bummer. But God is good. Like where we Mm -hmm. dismiss pain, like that's a toxic. And it's so subtle. Or Mm -hmm. what I've heard the term compulsive goodness. Yeah. Which is really, is we're driving, it's moral. It's really turning Christianity into a religion of morality based upon we have to work really hard at being good. And that's the antithesis of the gospel, Mm -hmm. of understanding living in a place of brokenness and God meets us in that place of our pain and our brokenness. Mm -hmm. Okay, but Joseph, I don't know if you're trying to go to the real, real thing there, which is the the claim that, you know, religion is the opium of the masses. And so is faith in general a massive coping mechanism to escape the pain of humanity. Yeah. Is that really what you're asking? Yeah, I think that is. <laughs> that is. Uh, I would be lying if I didn't say that that phrase was, that iconic phrase was in my my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and even looking particularly, like you said, Jeff, at the Western church, um, and I would even say particularly the American church, um, I mean, man, some of the most quote unquote successful or popular uh, conceptions of the Christian faith are essentially escape fantasies, Mm. right? You know, it's like, well, Hey, um, we don't need to care about creation because well, it's all going to get burned up anyways. And God, we're just going to go, you know, we're going to go to heaven and be with the Lord. Right. So we don't need to really do anything now, or just think about in the face of uh, how many worship songs are all about um, God's sovereignty and power, right? Because, you know, an, an unhealthy worship of that. Not saying that God isn't sovereign nor powerful, but our response to crisis so oftentimes is just to be like, well, I mean, God is in control, right? God is, God is in control. And it's like, well, I mean, that to me definitely can begin to uh, look like, oh, well, we're, we're using God, we're hiding behind God um, and using him to escape confronting our pain yeah. rather than saying, well, Hey, let's look at the fullness of the Christian picture. You know, God is, God doesn't run from pain. He's the God that enters into pain. He's yeah. the, the Holy spirit is the spirit who um, comes alongside of us. And to the point where it learns our sobs, our cries yeah. and cries out for us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, healthy religion, healthy spirituality versus unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you talk about that a lot. Um, and I'm sure both of you have some great, yeah. some great thoughts on it. Well, it's really interesting, um, is how, what, as I'm hearing you talk about how we theologize in our disconnect mm-hmm. and we, we disconnect, we're unaware that we're disconnecting. Um, and we, we talked about, um, uh, Neoplatonism and how we've separated the body from, you know, from the mm-hmm. spirit and so forth. But I realized on a personal note, 10, you know, I think it was 14 years ago when I kind of hit rock bottom and I came to that place where I can't do this anymore. And that was also manifested in serving the Lord. I just, I'm burning myself out and, and I be, and part of my burnout was escaping into pornography. And when finally I just hit my D-Day and I came to the end of myself is, one of the recovery groups that I had to join was recovering from idealism and utopianism. Mm. Mm. Is living this false idea that every you know God's going to come back, everything's great. Just I just if I worship a little harder, if I just 
you know, praise a little deeper and perform just a little perform better. a little better. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we're all, we all know at the heart of the gospel is praise mm-hmm. and gratefulness. Mm-hmm. But if we're doing it out of our pain, as a, it becomes a coping mechanism of either controlling or escaping. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so subtle in, as you said, it's subtle in the church today. Mm-hmm. And to the existential question of whether faith in general, in anything for that matter, Christianity, Buddhism, any of it, mm-hmm. is really just a way to escape dealing with the hardness and the suffering of life. I think that's um, a question every soul has to answer for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, You can hear me testify to that. You can hear any of us testify to that all day long, but it's, it's really, um, I think a soul question that we each have to address. Am I, what do I really believe? Yeah. Um, Personally, I believe that I believe that the gospel is true. And I believe that, um, that God is real. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have come to the place cause I've allowed myself the space to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Am I just duping myself? Yeah. Um, because I don't want to just believe we're just creatures who are alive and happen to be born and <laughs> happen to be, and we're just giving ourselves purpose. I, I have come to the place to think that life means so much more and mm-hmm. it is intentional mm-hmm. and there is a good God who loves us. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I do think everybody has to ask that question at some point. Yeah. yeah. Healthy spirituality and religion um, is not escape, uh, but it does bring great hope. So that's yes. my, my question. Maybe we can uh, end our conversation here. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of us, don't learn about the concepts that you encounter, you know, in this podcast and in the course and restoration therapy until much later in life, right? Until you've hit that rock bottom, Mm -hmm. uh, until the pain, you know, it's either, either great love or great pain Mm -hmm. breaks you open. Uh, and so we mentioned before, we're all so well practiced in our coping mechanisms, Mm -hmm. man, we've been doing them since we were, you know, infants or little kids. So is there hope of change? Like, I mean, We've, we've worn grooves into our brains, you know, to respond this way. Uh, so talk to me, give me some hope guys. <laughs> <laughs> of course there's hope because we can rewire the brain. Yeah. New neural pathways are happening all the time. We can actually grow and change. That's the goodness of God who has created us. And uh, that's the renewing of the mind that happens in Romans 12, yeah. one that he describes. Um, the transformation. Um, we can learn new things because I think as we, we realize that we're coping, which is a red flag that says, Oh, I must be running from something. I must Mm -hmm. be in pain. I must be, what am I believing or what am I perceiving that is so painful? And we welcome God into that moment. He helps us right there address that. And that changes everything Mm -hmm. because you're no longer going to cope if you're no longer running or feeling pain. And so if you can address the root, um, you address the red flags, the symptoms, the Mm -hmm. the reactions. And that's where change is extraordinary and wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the the beautiful thing about change from the kingdom of God perspective is that we cannot change ourselves. So it's not a matter of us just following these three steps and we can change. It's, it's the beautiful picture of the gospel is coming to a place of surrender and entering to a space of surrendering and giving up our lives and creating a space of allowing Jesus to come into those places of our heart, of our mind, where we're experiencing pain, where we're experiencing anxiety and fear, is creating a space in a place of courage of saying, Lord, out of desperation, I cannot do this on my own. I can't change on my own. And that's the mystery and the beauty of the grace of God is when we are able to come to the end of ourselves and come to that place of complete brokenness and and desperation and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's the beauty where Jesus meets us in the, that place of pain. It's, um, it, it's, and it's interesting, you know, I was reading in Psalms 23 yesterday, it says, 
Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk. And he makes me lay down in green pastures. Mm. <laughs> so he doesn't make me run faster in green pastures. He doesn't make me work harder. He doesn't make me become a moral, moral person. He makes me come to a place of surrender, makes me come to that place of, of rest mm-hmm. and saying, Lord, here I am. Reminds me of Isaiah 30, and returning and rest shall be your salvation. Mm. But you would have none of it. <laughs> now, I'd, yeah. wa- I'd, I'd rather work for my salvation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we, um, as we were describing these, I was thinking about how easily we, we just personalize everything and we just think about how it affects us. Mm-hmm. And as we were looking at these and you guys were being so vulnerable and awesomely confessing what this looks like in your own personal walk, I was thinking about what this looks like in my marriage and how my coping actually interacts with those around me, my loved ones mm-hmm. around me. Um, because we all have our coping and we marry people who have their coping. And <laughs> the interplay is often what gets us into sticky situations. Because mm-hmm. usually when we are um, having bumpy seasons with our spouses or our family members, it's because we're responding to their coping. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was just thinking, because I'm a shamer and my husband is an amazing blamer. <laughs> and so you can see how that dynamic would really just light up a marriage. Mm-hmm. He says, this is all your paint, fault. beautiful cycle. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because this is all your fault. And I go, yes, it I is. I know. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but that gets exhausting. And eventually, oh, you know, that mm-hmm. doesn't work. Yeah. And I'm a controller and he's an escaper. So I want to pursue and he wants to retreat. And mm-hmm. so look at that chase happening. Yeah. Um, and so I think that we just want to motivate anyone listening that it's worth doing the work to recognize how we're coping. Mm-hmm. What do we do and why do we do it? Mm-hmm. Because it's not just me that's being affected. Mm-hmm. It's not just the addict that's struggling it's there's a ripple effect to every one of these copings. It's impacting our relationships. It's impacting how we love and respond to those around us. Mm-hmm. And um, one person growing healthier shifts the whole environment. Mm-hmm. So if you just if we take responsibility for our own stuff, recognize our coping, and start doing the work of healing and inviting Jesus into it, um, extraordinary things can happen. Absolutely, you know and. In my own journey too, um, I began to feel, at least momentarily, uh, grateful for my coping, having learned to finally identify them. I didn't really know actually how to uh, give language to what I was really feeling. Like it took, mm-hmm. takes a while to be able to name um, really accurately some of your pain, or at least for a lot of people, because our culture in particular doesn't do a super great job at equipping people with the full vocabulary mm-hmm. of the emotional spectrum, yeah. you know? And so when you ask this, I mean, this happened in group last night, you know, we were in, went around and did a check-in and, you know, Daryl or I inevitably at one point would ask, Oh, wow. Like, well, how did that situation make you feel? And every single man in the room did not respond by naming how they were feeling. Mm -hmm. Of course not. They instead responded by going to their head and continuing to talk about, you know, situations in their life. Um, Because at this point they can't name what they're feeling, but when I'm coping, I can reverse engineer it, right? It became a friend when it's like, Oh man, well I'm, I've identified what my coping mechanisms are. So if I'm coping right now, that means I must be feeling something. Well, mm-hmm. what is it that I'm feeling? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, can you lead me backwards? And can we begin to identify like, oh, well, actually, I'm, you know, I'm feeling like I'm not measuring up. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to try and escape. Yeah. If you can't name what you feel, you might be able to name what you do. Yes. Yeah. And, and if you can't, your process. spouse can. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And that, that begins. That's part of the journey. So start there. Mm-hmm. Start there. Trace it back. Yeah. Do the work. It's worth it. Well, my friends, coping mechanisms. Do you think we've exhausted the topic? Certainly not, but maybe no, for today. But yeah. I think we've done a good job of, of uh, talking about our own pain, <laughs> our own coping. Absolutely. Well, 
I'm sure that we'll revisit uh, as we continue to dive deeper into the restoration model and share more of our own stories. Uh, I'm sure we'll continue to unpack some of the nuances of coping mechanisms and um, more importantly, how we're not destined nor doomed to be living in them forever. But uh, as we continue to say yes to God, as we continue to work this process, as we continue to vulnerably and courageously show up in community, bearing our pain and sharing it with others and bringing it to God, we can begin to learn the truth about who we are and begin to become empowered to choose new actions that are constructive rather than destructive. So there is good reason to hope, right? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Good word. All right. Well, thanks, my friends. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have questions or need help or for more information about how to take the next step in your healing journey, please feel free to email us at ftlpod at northcoastcalvary.org or head over to the relationshipresource.org to learn about what classes and resources are available to support you. A big thanks to North Coast Calvary Chapel and the Relationship Resource for making this podcast possible. Our podcast was directed and produced by Joseph Carlson and edited by Nate King. Original music by the one and only Brian McMaster. <laughs>